Well, did you hear about the famous professor of Greek philosophy? This man was a scholar. He lived and he breathed the classical writings of the Greek masters. Well, this professor, he moved near the university and was looking for a good laundromat. He thought he'd found one until they tore his suit pants that he'd taken in to have dry clean. This was his favorite suit. He was angry. He walked in and he held up those trousers and he shouted at the launderer, You Ripides! The owner was startled. You know, he said, well, if you say so. And so the professor shouted back, then you Menides. You get it? Euripides? Eumenides? Euripides was an ancient Greek playwright. Eumenides was the Greek play. It's a little Corinthian corniness to open up our third study here in Paul's letter to the church in Corinth. But it's more fitting than you think. For this is what the Corinthians had done to this church. They had ripped it apart. Cliques had formed and torn apart the body of Christ. You see, after his greeting, Paul dives right into the problem. In chapter 1, verses 10 through 17, he holds up this church. These are people who have been called to be saints, who've been enriched in Christ, who have been gifted by the Holy Spirit. They come short in no gift. They're eagerly awaiting the return of the Lord. And now Paul points to these precious people and he shouts, Euripides! People with an agenda had damaged the church. Hey, think of this church gathered together. Rather than mixing and mingling and fellowshipping, they huddle up in little clusters. Each group sort of scowling at each other. This we're right and everyone else is wrong mentality was so thick in this church you could choke. Celebrity culture had taken over in Corinth. Believers were gravitating toward their favorite teachers. In fact, read a little earlier, it says some were saying, I am of Paul, or I am of Apollos, or I am of Cephas, or I am of Christ. And this was tragic. Jesus died to bury our pride and bring us together. His mission was to create for us, fellowship with God and love for one another. To unify us, not divide us. And yet pride and prejudice permeated Corinth. This church was like an emergency room. Everyone was hurt or sick, and yet each group cared only for its own. Nursing their own wounds, vying to see the doctor first. And so Paul prays, Lord, you menides. Please, mend these divisions, heal these hurts, make us one again. And the first step in that healing was to focus them on the cross. As we learned last week, the message of the cross is powerful. It shocks our senses, and it blocks our pride, it mocks our values, and then when we embrace it, it locks our hearts forever. You see, the cross is the commonality that transcends all of our differences the trivialities that separate us disappear in the truth that Jesus died in our place for our sins. At the cross, our reasons to think too highly of ourselves get lost in the sight of the crucified Christ. Rather than feel pride, we feel shame. Jesus suffered the death we deserved. You see, the cross obliterates all of our reasons to boast. And at the cross, 
God is mocking the values that once supported that pride and prejudice. You see, in light of the cross, wisdom and power are no longer badges of honor. So what if you're the smartest girl in the class? So what if you're the strongest guy in the weight room? When Jesus saved us by a means that the world deems as foolish and feeble. See, the cross was a slap in the face to wisdom. And it was a parody on human power. And it is at the cross that we fall in love with God. For the cross teaches us that all God's blessings come not through human achievement, but through simple faith. You know, it's been said, the only truly level ground in all the universe is at the foot of the cross. For it's not who you are, it's not what you've done that gains God's approval. It's what Jesus did on that cross. And that applies to us all. Which is the love and grace and mercy that we all share. After we've been to the cross, we no longer boast in ourselves, but in the love that drew Jesus to that cross. And so the first step in mending the divisions here in Corinth was the message of the cross. The Corinthian church was full of itself. It was haughty and arrogant and in need of humility, and so Paul takes them to the cross. But the second step was to remind them of the makeup of the church. For Paul says to these Corinthians, have you looked around? I mean, have you looked in a mirror lately? You see, a quick inventory of the people who made up this church should have reminded them, hey, we're not all that. The Greek word translated church is ekklesia. It referred to a group of citizens who had been called out from their homes and assembled in a public forum. Literally, it could read, the called out ones. And this was the church in Corinth. God had called them out of the world and called them together in Christ to live as one family, to treat each other with the same kind of love and grace and mercy with which Christ treated them. But look around at who God chose to call. It wasn't Corinth's elite. It was the scum and the scourge of society. Paul tells them here in verse 26, For you see your calling, brethren, that not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called. Once a member of England's royal family, the Countess of Huntington, she was asked, how she was converted to Christ. She replied, she said, she was saved by an M. When asked what she meant, she explained, I'm thankful that God said, not many noble, rather than not any noble. She was referring to the M in our text. Certainly, the early church had some distinguished and wealthy members. Recall Joseph of Arimathea, the rich Jerusalemite, who allowed the women to lay the body of Jesus in his new tomb. And Nicodemus, another member of the Sanhedrin, both were men of means. There was Sergius Paulus, the Roman governor on the island of Cyprus, Paul's first Gentile convert, as well as Lydia, the businesswoman from Philippi. And of course Dionysius, the Areopagite, one of the resident philosophers that Paul had met on Mars Hill in Athens. Even Corinth had a few members who the world would have considered mighty or noble. In fact, Paul wrote to the Romans from the city of Corinth. And at the end of his letter to the Romans, he sends greetings 
from Gaius, my host and the host of the whole church, and Erastus, the treasurer of the city. Seems that Gaius and Erastus were prominent Corinthians, two men from the ranks of the well-to-do. See, Paul didn't say not any, but there were not many noble and mighty who had found their way to Christ. And this was not just true of the church in Corinth. All across the ancient world, the first Christians usually came from the ranks of the poor and the oppressed. The Roman Empire in the first century consisted of 60 million slaves. It was a common plight. Many of the first Christians were slaves, working off some kind of debt. And Paul writes a wake-up call to these proud, boastful Corinthians. He says, see your calling, brethren. Look at where you came from. Why are you so proud? And this is important for us too. See your calling, brethren. You know, I always encourage people, there are two ways for us to see ourselves. First, we should never forget who we are in Christ. We're a new creation, accepted in the beloved, joint heirs with Jesus. We're forgiven, redeemed. We're called saints. Never forget who you are in Christ, but you should also never lose sight of what you'd be without Him. For on your own, you're dead in your sins and lost and headed to hell. Here Paul says to the Corinthians, even according to worldly standards, they had nothing to brag about. He describes them. He says, not many wise according to the flesh. That means very few of the Corinthians had made the dean's list or had even gotten a college education. I mean, their parents didn't drive around town with a bumper sticker on their chariot that read, proud parent of an honor roll student. They may have had a few of these bumper stickers on their chariot. Proud parent of a C average student. Or proud parent of a high school dropout. Or maybe proud parent of the inmate of the month. Those were the kind of bumper stickers you saw in the parking lot at the church in Corinth. There wasn't much there for Corinth's social scene to envy. As far as the world without Christ was concerned, few of these Corinthian Christians had even risen to the heights of mediocrity. They were average at best. Many of these Christians had failed at secular life. There were not many mighty and not many noble. As for clout and celebrity, these people had struck out. They weren't the educated or the athletic or the political. I mean, walk into this church and the sisters weren't pretty, near the brothers were beefy. I mean, if you had gone to the singles group in this church looking for a dream boat, the pickings would have been slim. And I think we need to admit that the Calvary Chapel in Stone Mountain is not a whole lot different than the church in Corinth. See your calling, brethren. I won't ask for a response, but how many of us have messed up a marriage or marriages? How many of us have rolled up some heavy credit card debt or we're still on probation? We've made some mistakes, hadn't we? How many of us are praying that our kids don't put their parents through what we put our parents through? Hey, I've counseled enough of you to know that if you've never been enslaved to something, booze or drugs or sex, in this church, you're the exception to the rule. Paul says to us, 
See your calling, brethren, that not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called. Like Corinth, our church doesn't have a lot of senators or college presidents or Fortune 500 CEOs or professional athletes or supermodels in attendance from week to week, except my wife. (laughs) The first church down the street might, but we're like Corinth. For the most part, we're a working class bunch. We draw from the other side of the tracks. We've been scarred and nicked and stained. We've got a past. In fact, some of us, no, most of us still struggle with something left over from our foolish days. Right now, some of you are worried that the tow truck is going to pull up out in the church parking lot and take away your new car because you laid on a couple of payments. I mean, this is why Paul is saying to us, how can we be proud? How can we sport some kind of holier-than-thou attitude? Come on, man. In the light of our former life, even in the light of our current struggles, we got problems, but pride shouldn't be one of them. Beware. Here's a truthful saying. The person who gets too big for his britches will be exposed in the end. And yet, I love Paul's words here. See your calling, brethren. (laughs) He knew their past, but he still calls them brothers. Paul was confident that what Jesus had done on the cross more than made up for what we lack in and of ourselves. We are products of his grace, not of our own goodness or wherewithal, but grace and grace alone. I love this quote. The Christian church is the only society in the world in which membership is based upon the qualification that the candidate is not qualified to be a member. Even the person the world calls wise or mighty or noble is nothing before the holiness of God. None of us are worthy to be called brethren. And yet that's how grace addresses the Corinthians and us. And then Paul continues explaining God's wisdom in verse 27. He says, But God has chosen the foolish things of this world to put to shame the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to put to shame the things which are mighty. And the base things of the world and the things which are despised, God has chosen. And the things which are not to bring to nothing the things that are. God chooses the simple not the smart, the weak, not the strong, the humble, not the noble. And why? He answers that in verse 29, that no flesh should glory in His presence. Don't you just hate to be forced into a conversation with someone who only wants to talk about themselves? Don't you just hate that? I do. I think this, and I think that, and I did this, and I did that, and I am this, and I am that. Oh, give me a break. It's like that recurring scene in the Charlie Brown comic strip where the cartoonist, Charles Schultz, he has the teacher saying, wah, 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 wah. I mean, after a while, you just turn off the lady. You, You go to sleep. And that's how I treat someone who only likes to talk about themselves. 
Now imagine having to put up with the person who's talking about himself for all eternity. Why, 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 forever? That's too much to even contemplate. And that's how God feels about it as well. He'd rather spend eternity with humble, grateful, forgiven sinners saved by grace than a bunch of self-righteous braggers who only want to talk about how good they were and what they did to save themselves. God forbid putting God through such a thing. That's why he chooses people who have no room to boast, who have done nothing, who were nothing like you and me. Paul explains that God has made some unusual, even bizarre choices just to avoid men of God taking credit for the work of God. God chose the foolish. The Greek word is morose, from which we get the word moronic. Notice this, God chooses morons to do His work. I mean, that way he avoids anyone crediting our cleverness or our ingenuity or our charisma. Often today you see churches and ministries built around a dynamic leader and dependent on human acumen and talent. But that's not how God chooses to roll. He avoids that kind of scenario by choosing what appears foolish, even moronic, He calls a 22-year-old kid to start a church in the living room of his rented duplex with no support or promise of it. And I was that kid. People thought I was nuts. If the me today had been counseling the me then, I would have said you were nuts. God used our meagerness, our littleness, our unpreparedness to show off what he could do. He has used the foolish to confound the wise. Remember the 12 disciples Jesus picked? There wasn't an athlete or a soldier or a politician or a rabbi in the crowd. To the contrary, Jesus chose a few fishermen and a zealot. That means a terrorist and a despised tax collector. It was a strange motley crew to send out to change the world. In Acts 4, verse 13, when Peter and John go on trial, the religious hierarchy, they marveled at their boldness. In fact, they referred to the disciples as uneducated and untrained men, but men who had been with Jesus. And that's the key, isn't it? To be great for God, it's not what you know, but it's who you know. It's spending time with Jesus. God works through the person who's quick to give Him the glory, who'll keep their hands off the glory. God uses foolish things to spotlight His wisdom. And then we're told He uses the weak things of the world to put to shame the things which are mighty. And I can't read that without recalling the story of Gideon. God called Gideon to lead the charge against the Midianites. But when he sent word out to Israel to rally for battle, only 32,000 men showed up to fight against 135,000 Midianites. Initially, Israel was outnumbered four to one. What's God going to do about these odds? Well, he tells Gideon that he has too many men. And so he sends home those who don't have the stomach for war. That leaves him with 10,000. Now his army has shrunk to 13 to one. 
But still Gideon has too many men. God tells him to take his army down to the spring and let them drink. The 9,700 ready soldiers who could have been some help get sent home, which leaves Gideon with just 300 soldiers. And if it can't get any worse, these were the 300 sloppy soldiers that sort of stuck their head in a stream and lapped up like a dog. Gideon's army is now outnumbered 450 to 1. And the reason God stacked the deck against his own army and his own general is because God knows the human heart. He knows how easy it is for us to become glory grabbers. Even when we know better, we're tempted to take a few bows for God. The Lord told Gideon, the people with you are too many, lest Israel claim glory for itself against me, saying, My own hand has saved me. You see, God dug a hole so deep that everyone would know it wasn't Gideon who had climbed out. It was God who had lifted him out. And this is why God uses puny people, small folks, undermanned churches to do great things and demonstrate his power for it spotlights his glory, not our own. Recently, Kathy and I, we were at the Calvary Chapel Bible College out in California. My wife got a chance to meet a lady that she has respected for a long, long time, Johnny Erickson Tata. While a teenager, Johnny broke her neck in a diving accident. And over the years since, she's been an example of faith and an inspiration for the physically challenged. It was after the Oklahoma City bombing in 1995 that Johnny showed up at the Red Cross Center to help counsel the survivors. She said as she wheeled her wheelchair into the crisis center, she was met by a busy lady, the coordinator of the effort. This lady gave her a warm welcome. She said, oh my, are we glad to see you here? Johnny asked, why? She answered, when people walk up to you in your wheelchair and see how you handle your personal crisis with that smile of yours, it speaks volumes. It assures them that they can handle their crisis too. We need people like you here. Please help us go out and find more individuals like you who can assist us. And you see, this is God's recruitment strategy. We think He goes out to choose those who have skill and those who have talent, the good-looking and the well-equipped and the strong and the beautiful. That's what we think he goes out to recruit, but not so. Imagine God wants to sign up the crippled and the broken and the limited to do his work. The weak are the folks to which other broken people can relate to, who will understand them. Thus, God chooses the weak. Remember, it's not our lack of ability that limits us. God uses weak things. It's our lack of availability. We're told God even chooses the base things of the world and the things which are despised. The Greek word base, it means without family, without pedigree. You see, the ancient world held to a tight, restrictive caste system, much like India and other countries in the Far East do today. There was little room for social mobility. You lived basically where you were born. Same place, same strata. Little changed in the way of privilege over the course of a person's life. You were stuck. Your destiny was determined for you. 
And Paul's words here must have boggled the brains of the Corinthians who read this letter. For God says He chooses who no one else chooses. God picks the despised and the rejected and the left out and the forgotten and the abandoned. You see, the church was the one place in the Roman world where the outcast could belong and find a purpose. The one place. Listen to historian Garrett Fagan describe how Rome treated people, especially weak people. He says, ideas of human dignity were almost non-existent, and large swaths of the population were seen as inherently worthless. Weak members of society were objects not of compassion, but of derision. Romans lionized strength over weakness, victory over defeat, dominion over obedience. Losers paid a harsh price. Roman politics became a ruthless game of total winners and abject losers. And it was the losers, at least those that the society considered to be losers, that flocked to Christianity. For in Christ, they were given a chance a real opportunity at a new life to make a difference in their world. And this is still true. The world we live in still has its winners and its losers. But in Christ, I don't care how much losing you've done in the past, you can still be somebody in Christ Jesus. You can be somebody for God. The church isn't just for blue bloods and privileged folks. In the kingdom of God, it's the mutt that wins the dog show. God chooses and He uses who the world despises. Paul goes as far as to say that God uses the things which are not to bring to nothing the things that are. The word nothing could be translated what seems to be nothing or what is considered by society to be nothing. You know, the world we live in, it likes to write people off, doesn't it? It likes to pin their obituary before they're dead. But God specializes in second chances and resurrections. Even the resurrections of hopes and dreams and reputations. God finds the person who's been cut from its team. And He gives them a spot on His roster. He gets them back in the game. Don't let the world around you dampen down the possibilities before you find out what God can do. You could say God builds his team with undrafted free agents. He signs players on his team that nobody else wanted. God wins championships with a roster full of scrubs. This is why I think God loves Atlanta Hawks. (laughs) The Hawks aren't what I would call scrubs. But listen to the pundits. They all tell you that the Hawks can't win the big game because they lack a superstar. Prior to this year, they were a squad of no-namers, a team flying under the radar. And this is how God constructs His team. His son is the only superstar. The rest of us are bit players. We're just role players. And God is willing and able to use us if we always defer to Jesus. Yet here's a problem. We marvel at this thought of God using the foolish and the weak and the base and the despised and the nothing, that God would recruit these people for His team. That's amazing. Amazing grace. Sign me up. But then I realize these are the people that are going to be my teammates. 
I'm going to be wearing the same uniform as the base and seen with the despised and be working with the foolish and be dependent on the weak and hanging out with the nothing. And this can pose a problem for my pride. In the C.S. Lewis book, The Screwtape Letters, a senior demon, Screwtape, he writes to his apprentice demon, Wormwood, this novice demon is upset that the human to whom he's been assigned has become a Christian. But Screwtape isn't so discouraged. He points out the possibilities of the local church. Basically, he says, just wait until your subject goes to church and he'll get exposed to all those annoying people. There's plenty in the church to bug him and distract him from his newfound faith. Being around weak and base and foolish and despised people, even after they've been redeemed, isn't as easy on the ego as hanging out with the strong and smart and sophisticated. You see, he's saying even a church can be used to discourage a Christian. Remember what Paul is telling us. The church isn't supposed to be the hip and happening place. This is not supposed to be a place that's going to pump up your reputation and pump up your networking and make you privileged in the community. This is not the, what the social scene, this is not the social scene that's going to stroke your ego. This is not the popular hangout that you want to visit to see and be seen. To the contrary, like the cross, the church is an affront to our pride. See your calling, brethren. Look around and see the misfits that are now your brothers. Welcome to the church. We are God's way of mocking the world's wise and strong and privileged. I read of a man and his wife who were waiting to board a flight, and they, and they unexpectedly got bumped up to first class. It was the only time they'd ever been pampered on a plane. They got that little warm towel and a nice meal, some real silverware, plenty of elbow room. And as they sat there, they sort of played a little game between themselves. They looked around discreetly to try to figure out who had also gotten a bump and didn't belong in first class. And they noticed one fellow. He walked around the cabin in his socks. When the flight attendant gave him his linen napkin, he tucked it in his shirt as a bib rather than laying in his, in his lap. Twice he sneezed so loud the oxygen mass almost dropped. <laughs> oh, yes. There was no way he belonged in first class. And here is the moral of the story. So often, we're like that snooty couple on the plane playing the game. We look around at the church and all its misfits here. We have this air of superiority. We're embarrassed by our brothers and sisters. And yet the truth is, we don't belong here any more than they do. We are every bit the misfit in someone else's eyes. But the cross and the church were intended to humble us. Don't be ashamed of the church. Recognize it is God's means of showing off His grace and of challenging this world's values. Understand the team you're on. Realize God's purpose for His church. You see, like the Greeks of old, people today, they admire wisdom and power and privilege. And that's why God has chosen the cross 
as the means to our salvation, for it is an affront to all three. And this is why he chooses the church. You see, the type of people that God picks to be part of his kingdom and to do his work on earth baffles our employment strategies and undermines our notions of power and turns upside down our concepts of rank. God chooses not the smart, but the simple. Not the mighty, but the frail. Not the upper crust, but the down and out. He's making sure that every knee will bow before him, that no flesh, no man will glory in his presence. God has made it so no one can say God uses only the slick or the smooth or the strong or the spotless. No, God uses the bottom of the barrel to show he's on top of the world. Understand what Christ is doing in and with his church. Paul explains it in verse 30. He says, but of him you are in Christ Jesus, who became for us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. Everything we like, lack, Christ more than makes up for. We're the foolish, but he gives us wisdom. We're the weak, but he makes us righteous or strong before God. We're the base. But in Christ, He sets us apart and makes us special. We're the nothing that He has now redeemed by His precious blood. And in doing so, has ascribed to us extreme worth and great significance. You remember verse 22? Look up a few verses. Paul wrote, The Jews requested a sign. Greeks seek after wisdom. The Jews, they liked muscle. And thus they said, show us a demonstration of power. The Greeks were into philosophy, and thus they said, Speak to us an oration of wisdom. Well, God did both in Jesus Christ. Here in verse 30, Paul tells us that Jesus Christ is God's sermon on wisdom. Just look at his life. Read about it in the Gospels. It was a ballet of love and truth and grace and judgment and boldness. He spoke profoundly simple, and he spoke simply profound. And to the person who is now in Christ, the person of Christ becomes a resident and an available source of wisdom for us if we will just ask and avail ourselves of it. And then to the Jews, Christ is a source of strength and might. He brings the superpowers of righteousness and sanctification and redemption to ordinary people. Here's what this means. Righteousness. Jesus makes us right before God. How amazing is that? Sanctification. He makes us clean before men and redemption. He reconciles our past and makes us ready for the future. Now, when you think about it, here's your standing in Christ. You are right with God. You are clean before men and you're ready for the future. That makes you strong. That makes you powerful. Add God's wisdom and there's nothing you can't tackle. This is what we find at the cross and in the church. The wisdom of God and the power of God. And thus Paul concludes his thoughts on the church in verse 31 by quoting Jeremiah chapter 9. That as it is written. And Paul actually summarizes the end of chapter 9. He says, he who glories, 
Let him glory in the Lord. Now let me read you the fuller version of Jeremiah chapter 9. Verses 23 and 24 tell us. Let not the wise man glory in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man glory in his might. Nor let the rich man glory in his riches. But let him who glories glory in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord. Now this is pretty amazing. It's pretty amazing that our study this morning ends with the text that we'll be working through this evening. Tonight, we're in Jeremiah chapters 8 through 10. I don't believe in coincidence. So apparently, God wants us to really get this. He's given us twice, this twice in one day. If you've been to the cross, if you're part of the church, you should think differently. Both the cross and the church should rearrange our values. You see, today people are into mind and muscle and money. They're into brains and brawn and bucks. They're into education and athleticism and affluence. But at the cross and in the church, what the world values has been exposed as nothing but vanity. On the cross, God mocks our preoccupation with wisdom and our glamorizing of power. In the church, He deliberately sidesteps the wise and the strong and the rich. Why? Choosing instead to use the foolish and the weak and the base. And He does it so that no flesh should glory in His presence. He's telling us that Jesus is all that really should matter to us. When the Apostle Paul wrote Philippians, he'd been a Christian for over 30 years. He had planted churches all over the world. He had seen thousands of people come to Christ. He had raised up leaders. He had worked miracles. He had pre preached the gospel around the world. In fact, the man had written the lion's share of the New Testament. But at the close of Philippians chapter 3, he reveals his goal in life still, his passion. Verse 10, that I may know Him. Amazing. After three decades of knowing Jesus, Paul's desire was to know Him more. Christ Himself was His motivation. As Augustine wrote, the soul of man was made with sweet tastes that only our Lord Jesus can satisfy. If you want to brag... And from time to time, we all like to do so. Then go for it. But brag about Jesus. Not your money. Not your health or your buff body or your tan. Not your fat wallet. For those of us who have been to the cross and are part of the church are no longer impressed. Let him who glories glory in the Lord.